Machine and our 10th episode anniversary. Yeah. Alright, I'm here with Noah and Emily, and we're about to do what your parents told you not to do and have some fun with food. Uh, so we've all gone out and we found a fact about the things that we eat and drink that you might not expect. So we'll discuss our trivial morsels, and then I've prepared a quiz loosely inspired by the theme. Uh, before we get started, just a reminder, check out our social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter at FaxMachinePod and on Facebook at FaxMachinePodcast. If you like what you hear, slide into our DMs. <laughs> yeah, I said it. I'm hip. <laughs> and please review us on iTunes and Spotify. And with our first mouthful today, Noah, take it away. This week I learned that the Catholic Church believes that God is not present in gluten-free communion wafers. It turns out that God is in the gluten. <laughs> so, where did this come from? In 2017, a letter was released at the urging of Pope Francis in order to clarify the Catholic Church's position on gluten-free communion wafers. The gist? They don't like it one bit, all right? This raised a serious spiritual and practical issue for Catholics with celiac disease, which is a serious autoimmune condition triggered by gluten that affects about 1 in 100 people. But it turns out that it's more complicated than the church merely not being sensitive to the needs of its adherents. It's part of a host of issues over which centuries of wars have been fought and ancient religions split in two. But it can be grossly oversimplified as follows. Should Christians be cannibals? Or just pretend to be cannibals. <laughs> so what do I mean by this? Catholics all around the world participate in Eucharist, also known as Holy Communion, the Christian ceremony that commemorates the Last Supper. This ceremony typically includes the consumption of bread and wine. Christian denominations often differ about the meaning and symbolism of this sacrament, and even whether it is symbolic at all. For example, the Catholic Church dogma is that during the Eucharist, the bread and wine offering changes into the body and blood of Jesus in reality, with no symbolic aspect to it. This is known as transubstantiation, and according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, occurs literally in, quote, a way surpassing understanding. Disagreement over the ways in which Christians should refer to the nature of the Eucharist, as well as its theological implications, was a factor in the Protestant Reformation, and remains to this day one of the major points of contention between the Catholic Church and Protestants broadly, along with the inclusion of women as priests and the primacy of the Pope. So what does this have to do with gluten? The issue is the Catholic Church takes very seriously the notion of being, quote, in continuity with Jesus, who, according to the Bible, ate bread and drank wine the Last Supper. Chad Pecknold, a theology professor at Catholic University, put it succinctly, Christ did not institute the Eucharist as rice and sake or sweet potatoes and stout. But, you know, not to criticize Jesus Christ or anything, but if he had passed around sweet potato fries and Guinness at the Last Supper, I don't think the church would have any trouble filling the pews. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> so Chad goes on to say, It may be a small thing to people, but the Catholic Church has spent 2,000 years working out how to be faithful to Christ and even the smallest things. To be vitally and vigorously faithful is something which is simply integral to what it means to be Catholic. So there's a shocking amount of tradition kind of around this one. Uh, I was looking up the Code of Canon Law that, that kind of dictates what can be used for um, not just the, the communion wafer, the bread, but also the wine. Um, and I don't know if you're going to talk about this more, but the rules were basically 
Um, it must be celebrated with bread and in wine to which a small con quantity of water must be added. So wine, can't, it's not enough that you have wine. You have to pour a little bit of water in. The bread must be wheaten only, recently made, so there's no danger of corruption. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and the wine must be natural from grapes and also not corrupt, um, which basically means that you can't add any preservatives of any sort to any of these things, um, which was kind of a big problem uh, for winemaking uh, for a very long time, because if you didn't make wine regularly, then the wine would spoil quite quickly. And so uh, historically, and I forget where this happened, um, but I think it was it was only really kind of uh, formalized in the 1800s that because people had already been doing it for wine, you're allowed to add spirit alcohol that were distilled from grapes as well in order to preserve the wine better. Uh, but it had to be a reasonable amount. The quantity added had to be much less, and it may not exceed 18% of the whole. Okay. <laughs> so they were very exacting. Yeah. Like not even like around 20, like 18%. Yeah. 18%, <laughs> yeah. no more. <laughs> hey, it ties way back to uh, Noah's first episode of, not your, you Noah, but Biblical Noah's episode oh, of Getting right. Drunk. Yes. That might have been 19%, and that was enough to tip them over the edge. Yep. You never know. They learned from their mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> But the question is, how can Catholics with serious conditions like celiac, who risk, you know, real harm by ingesting gluten, continue to be, quote, vitally and vigorously faithful? It turns out there is a middle ground. So the 2017 letter from Pope Francis that started all this also said, quote, low gluten hosts, partially gluten free, are valid matter, provided that they contain a sufficient amount of gluten to obtain the confection of bread without the addition of foreign materials and without the use of procedures that would alter the nature of bread. This is where the Benedictine Sisters of Perpetual Adoration of Clyde, Missouri enter the story. <laughs> it's very exciting. We, we've been waiting. Yeah. <laughs> After a decade of cutting-edge experimental baking, these nuns became the first community to produce church-approved low-gluten altar breads containing just 0.001% gluten, an amount low enough for most celiac sufferers to ingest. In a 2004 interview with the Washington Post, Alessio Fasano, who was then director of the Center for Celiac Research at the University of Maryland, and who now directs the Center for Celiac Research and Treatment at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, said that one of the Benedictine sisters' low-gluten wafers contained such a low-gluten percentage that someone with celiac disease would have to consume 270 wafers daily to reach a danger point. And Claire Baker... What a great last name for this topic, by oh the way. Oh, <laughs> destination right there. <laughs> Claire Baker, who is a spokeswoman for Beyond Celiac, an advocacy organization for people with celiac disease, said, quote, you'd have to be very devout or really excited about going to church to eat that much at communion. <laughs> and, and maybe she underestimates how fun it is to go to mass. But I like to imagine that any given Sunday, you'll be able to find Chad Pecknold, quote, vitally and vigorously digging into a packet of delicious church crackers. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I think there is a prohibition against consuming more than one Eucharistic wafer per day. And I, I'm not sure where that's written, but I feel like I've been told that, like, in, a, in an admonishing sort of way at some point in my life. <laughs> I mean, they are good. I mean, yeah. like, I, you know, full disclosure to the podcast, I am the only person on this podcast who wasn't raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I did go to an Episcopalian school, which is basically Catholicism with women. Um, yeah. That's like... <laughs> it's effectively the same. I mean, that's it, It's like right? a gluten-free <laughs> communion host. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so close, but... <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, I remember, I was like, this is, I like this wafer. <laughs> 
it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's all right. Hmm. So I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just not having to yeah. be totally immersed well, in it so, for childhood. So here's that that as well. But here's a question for you. Uh, when you consume them, do you chew them? Oh, no, you like put them right on your tongue and they like half dissolve. It's nice. Oh, see, that's, I think, why I'm averse to them. Because I was always taught that to chew them is disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so then they just sit there. Well, you're already go back eating to your Jesus. You might as well just <laughs> no, go yes. all the way. I mean, that's what I, my, my argument as a small, you know, child was always, well, why aren't the enzymes in my saliva, like, disrespectful to Jesus? And here we are today. <laughs> but actually... So I, I remember I went to Catholic high school and I had had this experience for about 15 years before I had it like enumerated by a teacher. But so in the Catholic tradition, you're not supposed to eat or drink an hour leading up to the mass as, as a form mm, of like really? bodily purification to prepare yourself to receive the host. Jesus doesn't like match well with tacos or something. Yeah, he doesn't pair well at all. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> but so this phenomenon happens where you like... And and in modern times, I think you're allowed to drink water within an hour of the mass, and if you have a medical condition, it's it's okay to do whatever. But as a child, it was for, and I grew up in a very strict house, so there was no food an hour before mass, and water was like very minimal. Yeah. And so you get there, and you're sitting there in this hot church for an hour, and you've got like cotton mouth basically, and then this guy hands you this piece of unleavened bread directly to your tongue, and like it sticks to your tongue, and you're just kind of sitting, and you're not allowed to chew, and you're like. Mm, and then it makes the transition to the roof of your mouth where it will stay for the rest of the day. <laughs> and you're just very slowly trying to peel it back off the roof of your mouth so you can just swallow it. The whole time being like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In some ways it's meant to capture the suffering of Christ. <laughs> but I had made it years of my life, like just thinking this to myself, like like not not imagining that every person around me was going through the same thing. Just I thought they all knew what they were doing, and I was like, I'm a failure. <laughs> and then my high school English teacher is like, Well, back in my day, you had to wait four hours before mass, so everyone went to the seven a.m. mass, so they didn't have to deal with it. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, that that happens to you too. <laughs> so there there is another even deeper, or I guess more interesting catholic argument uh that can be made the fact that we're uh all kind of trained and trained biologists makes it very interesting because if you were to physically change the material then you should be able to do genetic testing um which first i'll tell you is anathema to even think this (laughs) and and like i think you mean heresy yeah I mean, sure, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, where does where does heresy end and anathema begin? <laughs> it's a great. Um, but basically, you shouldn't have these thoughts. But if you did, like Dam- uh, Damian Marzik and Marin Sam oh, did, God. PhDs from the Association of Raelian Scientists in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, they published a a not peer reviewed article about how there is a lack of human DNA in in communion wafers. Um, and this, I can only go on to say that this is extremely disrespectful to church wafers, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> that they collected samples at a local church, brought it back to their laboratories, and Ooh, ran DNA testing. Geez. No, that's a yep, big no now. That's a big no. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so as your fact was about holy carbs, um, I opted to look into holy and also unholy foods. Um, so these are kind of, I guess I'll call them factlets, and that they're kind of 
just kind of like quick ones I'm going to shoot out that I thought were kind of cool. But re-holy foods, apparently, I didn't know this, but per Greek tradition, baklava is meant to have 33 layers of phyllo to symbolize the 33 years of Christ's life. Oh. Kind of cool. Uh, also, pretzels have an innate religious symbolism uh, underlying them as well. Although their exact history and origin is contested, uh, the knot shape is generally thought to represent the shape of hands in prayer, while the three holes represent the holy, (laughs) of course. Um, And regarding unholy foods, so have you guys heard of ortolans? No. 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 Okay, this is a creepy thing. But uh, they're a somewhat unusual element of French cuisine. So they're these small birds that are captured during their migratory flight to Africa, fattened, drowned in Armagnac, which is a French brandy, and then roasted and eaten whole. And they're supposed to be very delicious and nutty and gamey and like a very fine staple of French cuisine. Um, but part of the tradition of their consumption is that eaters will drape a napkin over their head. Uh, and while the reason for this is contested, one interpretation is that it's done to conceal the indulgent, disgraceful act of eating these tiny, delicious little birds from the judgmental <laughs> eyes of God. <laughs> oh so God. it's kind of like, if I just hide under this napkin, <laughs> God's not going to know. Um, and it's actually, it's been illegal to uh, capture and, you know, sell these birds in France since the 90s, but there's actually been a resurgence more recently to legalize it by a bunch of Michelin star chefs. Um, and honestly, they do still cook them and kind of sell them under the table um, or under the napkin, if you will. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Noah. Emily, what have you got for us? Uh, Every year, about 150 tons of tomatoes are thrown by roughly 20,000 participants in the world's biggest food fight, La Tomatina. Yes. So La Tomatina (laughs) is a festival that takes place in Buñol, Spain, a small town not too far from the Mediterranean coast, every year on the last Wednesday in August. Uh, So it occurs as part of a traditional week of festivities in Buñol. And in fact, the first and unplanned Tomatina uh, took place during such a week in 1945. Yeah, just after a really bad play. (laughs) (laughs) something close to that yes Uh, so the accounts that I've read uh, chalk it up to a scuffle that occurred between some parade marchers and spectators um, which then spread through the crowd and now infamously drew ammunition from a nearby vegetable stand so in 1946 the year after some festival attendees seeking to reenact the previous year's festivities brought their own tomatoes from home and instigated another food fight uh, which continued annually on that Wednesday during that same festival Um, My favorite anecdote from La Tomatina's history, though, has to do with one of the few failed attempts to ban it. Uh, So apparently in 1957, festival officials sought to cancel La Tomatina, propelling protesters to stage a mock tomato funeral procession (laughs) in which they carried a coffin containing a giant tomato down the street in a parade that even featured a band playing funeral dirges (laughs) to accompany them. So needless to say, the message was conveyed and now La Tomatina still exists. Um, That's some dedication. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So as you might imagine, uh, the popularity of La Tomatina has inspired some spin-off events around the world. Um, And in going down this very strange tomato-covered rabbit hole, um, there was one that stood out in my research uh, considerably above the rest. So uh, it is the Colorado-Texas Tomato War. Which is held Ooh. annually, yes. So for for our listeners at home, uh, Noah is a Texan. Howdy, y'all! By heritage, hey, he's even he's wearing a shirt right now that says Houston on it. So I mean, <laughs> it doesn't get more Texan than that. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to see your your reaction to this tale. 
um, might inspire you to partake next year when they do it. We'll see. <laughs> so the Colorado Texas Tomato War. Oh, I gotta say, oh, this is important. Oh, yeah. The thing is, actually, my sister lives in Denver. Oh, oh so this this could actually nice. be very very exciting. Okay, <laughs> let's let's agree that if you go and like go to next year, please report back with how it actually yeah, is because definitely. after you hear this, I think you'll want to, but I also <laughs> really want you to already. Okay. So, so the Colorado-Texas Tomato War, uh, it's held annually in Twin Lakes, Colorado, involves hundreds of Coloradans and Texans uh, battling it out over the course of three days of rotten tomato tossing. <laughs> So it all started in the early 80s when an inn owner by the name of Taylor Adams organized it as a sort of outlet for her frustrated neighbors to take out their, well, frustrations um, on the Texan tourists that keep vacationing in their town. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. We suck. You guys. <laughs> 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 so to give a rough outline of what actually takes place, uh, the event begins with both sides gathering in a designated war zone on the first day, and then over the course of the three-day skirmish, roughly 8,000 pounds of overripe tomatoes are pelted, uh, tossed, you know, whatever word you want to use, uh, with the victorious side having the most survivors standing by the end. <laughs> uh, so they follow kind of, I guess, paintball or laser tag rules where if you're hit, you're out. Mm. So. At a first glance, this just sounded like another lighthearted, zany local tradition, uh, much like La Tomatina, which for context, um, restricts participants to lobbing pre-squished tomatoes, um, so nobody gets hurt, and then just running around for a bit. But upon reading a bit further, and then even further than that, because I couldn't stop reading because it's so crazy, <laughs> um, it became evident that the combatants in the tomato war um, approach it with a very real, but still patently ridiculous, warlike fervor. <laughs> So, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, uh, an article that I read covering the 1984 war, uh, whose slogan was either, keep Colorado beautiful, put a Texan on a bus, or, <laughs> or Colorado welcomes Texans with nuclear arms, depending on who you asked. Um, this article described both sides laying landmines, so basically burying tomatoes, so if you step on one, you're dead, <laughs> decking, out, <laughs> decking out jeeps in paper mache to look like tanks, um, and parachuting armed to the teeth with their trusty nightshades onto the battlefields. <laughs> Uh, rumors during that year spread that invading Texans were preparing to fly over and drop tomatoes out of Learjets, which they had done in the past on <laughs> planes, as well as launching tomatoes from fleets of kayaks. God what? damn it, I love my people. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is just amazing. Also, uh, Coloradans during this year anticipated their enemies, whose uniforms were white, uh, having the advantage due to an incoming snowstorm and wondering, in quotations, <laughs> whose side God was on. <laughs> well, we're happy to answer that for you. <laughs> yes. Um, this, this sounds like if you gave Wiley e. Coyote a box of tomatoes, like what would he do? <laughs> Just like... So another article I read documenting the 19, 1987 iteration of the Tomato War um, describes a scene in which, in quotations, the vastly outnumbered Texans took refuge in an improvised fort they dubbed the Tamalamo. Which they raised their state flag. <laughs> Coloradans charged the fort across the creek. They they renamed the Rio Grande. The wounded were tended to by battlefield medics equipped with Bloody Marys. <laughs> <laughs> 
I am not making this, this up. This is the, the way. best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh. Isn't this fantastic? <laughs> but I will say that the tomato war, as it occurs nowadays, is a much more toned down and lighthearted versions of the battles of old. Fuck that! <laughs> My sister that. and I are going in hard. <laughs> We're gonna just—I don't Bring actually. The glory I days. Just realized, I, I just realized I don't know what side she'd be on. I was just assuming she would be on my side, but honestly, you're on she, opposing sides. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna be tearing the family apart right now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but frankly, if it's anything like riding in the back seat of our jeep as kids together, she's gonna destroy me. <laughs> she has the sharpest fingers poking into my sensitive little ribs. <laughs> Even more so matters they're good at throwing tomatoes, but maybe maybe that translates. <laughs> Um, so actually the, the sort of watered down version of it now is probably in response to the brief hiatus that it had in the 90s uh, due to concerns that the recurrent damages and liability would make it hard for property owners in the town to actually be insured. <laughs> um, but it was revived in 2011 and it's now strictly non-competitive um, and incorporates nice mm. things like live music and fundraising. That is cool. Um, I will say that those who participated in the blood or maybe lycopene bath that it used to be <laughs> <laughs> look back upon it fondly um, as per an interviewee in one of the articles I referenced above. Uh, in quotes, it was a really fun time for everyone, even those who got killed. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, so that that's one of the best events that I think you could have found. It's <laughs> a tough act to follow. I, I'll just mention one that I think, I, I feel like I'm familiar with only because it makes it on the news every year on like the local sports channel, like blooper reel. But, um, and I'm sure there are multiple of these in the world, but there's a, a Gloucestershire Cooper's Hill cheese rolling challenge. Um, and the rules of this, and I, I think as I describe it, it'll be very familiar. I think I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. I think I've heard of this too. Yeah. To outrun the wheels. Some of the pic- yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's a giant wheel of cheese. Some of the pictures are amazing. Um, from the top of a hill, a nine pound round of double Gloucester cheese is sent rolling down the hill and competitors start racing down the hill after it. The first person over the finish line at the bottom of the hill wins the cheese. Nice. <laughs> 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 it's a high stakes race for sure. Um, so uh, the competitors are aiming to catch the cheese however it has around a one second head start and can reach speeds of up to 70 miles an hour (laughs) but so unfortunately because of the fact that a a nine pound wheel of cheese that's going at 70 miles an hour can cause serious harm to competitors and spectators as of 2013 a foam replica replaced the cheese um, the winner, when they when they won, actually received the actual wheel of cheese and not the foam replica. Well, if they didn't, would they be worried about having FOMO? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Guys, this is gold! <laughs> why, why are you laughing? <laughs> Just one last thing on tomatoes, though. because So tomatoes are a New World fruit, um, actually in the nightshade family. But they're from South America originally, and they were reintroduced back into Europe. And then they became a staple in Italian cooking and what we call marinara sauce, uh, which is a tomato-based sauce. Um, and so an interesting question is, do you know why we call it marinara sauce? No. Is it something about Virgin Mary? No. Mm. Uh, the ocean? Oh, uh, good. Yeah, basically. Okay. So marinara, it stands for sailor sauce. Because mm. sailors oh, are right there we go. So, so what you're saying? <laughs> Semen. Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> But yeah, it's from, it's from the Italian marinai, which is sailors. And ah, so the sailors brought tomatoes back, and then marinara sauce was created, um, and that's that's where the name comes from. So I thought that was kind of, I thought they made a lot of sense. 
So I wanted to share that as a lover of word etymology. I yeah. like it. Very cool. <laughs> so you you mentioned that uh, tomatoes are a fruit, which of course we all know now it's almost uh, a cliche at this point to say that the you know the exact botanical definition uh, is that it is in fact a fruit. I maintain something different that. Uh, does it belong in a fruit salad should be the standard by mm. which fruits and vegetables are judged. And the U.S. Supreme Court agrees with me. There was a Supreme Court case, Nix v. Hedden, in which the court ruled that under U.S. Customs regulations, the tomato should be classified as a vegetable rather than a fruit. The court was unanimous in this opinion. <laughs> okay? And I want to give you guys a second to guess. Um, when do you think this ruling was issued? So, um, I think... I know the ruling you're talking about. Um, <laughs> There's literally nothing important happening. <laughs> That's the real question. Oh, uh, I, I want to be pessimistic, though. I want to say that it might have been like 2000. Oh, Rob. 1893. Okay. <laughs> really? It was so, so okay. long ago. This is an issue. I, I was shocked by this. I thought it was going to be like an issue of like children's lunches i mean that's what you always hear is that like the mm. the pizza in like the school cafeterias could technically right. be considered as a, yeah. as a vegetable serving because of the tomato sauce that was on it right um but this has clearly been an issue that has been you know bugging people since the 19th century which is amazing <laughs> that's so funny all right so apart from the food fights that i just told you guys about um as i'm sure you're also aware people most commonly associate throwing tomatoes um when they're rotten to convey displeasure towards performance. Uh, the urban legend associated with this is that dissatisfied audiences at the Globe uh, would pelt underwhelming hamlets and leers with tomatoes during Elizabethan times. Um, but this is actually extremely unlikely since tomatoes weren't really even around yet. Um, actually, they make their first appearance in an English cookbook 150 years later. Mm. However, there are records of stage actors having been pelted with tomatoes over the centuries, and the earliest recorded instance of it is a surprisingly well-detailed account published by the New York Times in 1883. Oh boy. I know this is going to oh. be good. I love it. So because I don't think I can paint the scene nearly as well as the author of this account does, I now present to you a dramatic reading of, quote, an actor demoralized by tomatoes, <laughs> published in the New York Times in 1883. All right. So I ask you guys to uh, visualize the scene that I'm now about to recite to you. John Ritchie of Hampstead, Long Island, aspires to be an actor and lecturer. He made his debut before a Hampstead audience at Washington Hall a few evenings ago. He had a crowded house and was warmly received. In fact, it was altogether too hot for him, there being distributed among the audience a bushel or two of rotten tomatoes. Oh boy. The first act opened with Mr. Ritchie trying to turn a somersault. He probably would have succeeded had not a great many tomatoes struck him, throwing him <laughs> off his balance and demoralizing him. It was some time before the audience could induce him to go on with the performance. He next attempted to perform on the trapeze. As he lay upon the bar with his face toward the audience, a large tomato thrown from the gallery struck him square between the eyes, <laughs> and he fell to the stage floor just as several bad eggs dropped upon his head. <laughs> then the tomatoes flew thick and fast, and Richie fled. <laughs> fled for the stage door. The door was locked. And so he ran the gauntlet for the ticket office through a perfect shower of tomatoes. Uh. <laughs> he reached it, and the show was over. Richie estimates his damages at $50 and vows that he will not give a performance at Hampstead again. <laughs> so, 
I'd also like to mention that I tried to look into John Ritchie um, in terms of his acting career and could not find any accounts of him other than this incident. So. Well, clearly he was demoralized. Poor guy. He was <laughs> demoralized. couldn't find any evidence of the fruits of his labor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or vegetables, to be account. Maybe he got hit with one so hard he was in a vegetative state. <laughs> yeah, it sounds to me That's like true. he was sauced. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. So that just leaves my fact. And this week I learned that Jaffa Cakes, a small British confection, uh, went to court in 1991 to be told whether they are in fact a cake or a cookie. Ooh. And so this is a, a, this is a big question. And uh, for many of our listeners, you may not know what a Jaffa Cake is. And actually, I had never seen a Jaffa Cake, which is why um, Fax Machine provided Jaffa Cakes for everyone present at the recording of Fax Machine. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. All right. Nice. You get a Jaffa Cake. You get a Jaffa Cake. <laughs> we all get Jaffa Cakes. But um, none of you at home. You mind if I do the honors? Go, Go for it. it. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is difficult to open. <laughs> so the, the confections are jammed in pretty tightly. They are um, not coming out of the case. <laughs> I mean, Some technical difficulties. I'm going to get a butter knife. I'll be <laughs> so, so Jaffa Cakes are a biscuit-sized cake, as described by Wikipedia, introduced by McVitie and Price in the United Kingdom in 1927, and they're actually named after Jaffa oranges. Oh, and perfect. Emily is back with the knife. <laughs> I have returned. <laughs> All right, so we're going we're gonna to ply these apart and then each try one. Oh, God. I assure you they're actually good. <laughs> this is carnage. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. All right, here we go. Okay. So right. you'll notice a few characteristics about your Jaffa cake. Oh, thank you very much. And then there's like a flaky, wow, these <laughs> are in rough shape. They're <laughs> <laughs> normally not partially melted as they are now. Yeah. There, there's a chocolate covering. There's actually been a huge kind, kind of uh, separate discussion about which side is up. Mm. Is the chocolate side up or down? Which is a kind of ridiculous what? question, I, I think. Um, so everyone take well, a bite. Mmm. Mm. Dry. <laughs> these are particularly dry. Was it possibly an option for these to be classified as garbage? <laughs> <laughs> so, they're, <laughs> so they're basically small, fluffy confections that have an orange taste in them. They're named after Jaffa oranges. Oh, Which sense. is where the like the orange flavor and actually the orange packaging you see comes from. I mean, I don't like it, but <laughs> I am gonna eat a lot more of them. So um, basically, these things you might say they're just fluffy cookies. I think would be like if you had to describe it to someone kind of at first sight. Um, and to us, like it, it doesn't really matter, right? Is this a cookie? Is this a cake? But you know who it does make a big difference to? Who? The United Kingdom's value-added tax, because <laughs> no. the VAT, as it's known in the UK. Um, is a tax that's payable on chocolate-covered biscuits, and that's the weird British word for cookie. <laughs> so they pay this value-added tax on chocolate-covered biscuits, but not on chocolate-covered cakes. And so McVitie's, the company who makes them, was put in this position of defending the classification of a Jaffa cake as a cake, and it was done in a tribunal in 1991, uh, where there was a prosecution basically saying, no, it's a cookie, and then the McVitie's lawyer saying, no, it's a cake. And like kind of going back and forth about what's a cake really, <laughs> which I think has to be one of the most interesting like court rulings that I've ever heard of. Um, here are the criteria that were used to assess the product. 
The product's name was regarded as a minor consideration. So calling it a Jaffa cake doesn't mean that it's a cake, but it, 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 is, it has some weight. The ingredients regarded were similar to those of cake, more so than of biscuits. Um, the product's texture was regarded that of being a sponge cake. The product hardens when stale in the manner of a cake instead of softening in the manner of a biscuit. Mm. Yes. Okay. Which is, I mean, very contentious because if you've ever had soft-baked cookies, they also harden. Oh. I'm sorry, those cakes. Oh, but we can, we can return to that later. Okay. <laughs> um, a substantial part of the Jaffa cake in terms of bulk and texture is sponge. Whatever, whatever they mean specifically by that, I'm a little unclear. Um, the Jaffa cake is more biscuit size than a cake. The product is displayed alongside other biscuits in supermarket aisles rather than other cakes. Uh, and the product is presented as a snack eaten with the fingers like a biscuit rather than eaten with a fork with a meal as a cake might be. Also, if you're only eating cake at specific meal times and like with silverware, then you are eating cake wrong. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> you are doing it wrong. And so after I forget how many days or weeks this tribunal went on, um, they found they ruled in favors of McVitie's and ruled that the product should be considered a cake, meaning that there was no value added tax in the United Kingdom. Separately, in Ireland, their their revenue and tax also had a ruling that said it was a cake for a completely different reason. Because they said that their moisture content was greater than 12%. Well, so, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that obviously makes it a cake. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. And so this this was just a really cool, like, food standards kind of question that had to be ruled on by a court, by, like, you know, like, licensed lawyers arguing over whether it's a cake or a cookie. Uh, and I want to briefly mention one other case, also in the United Kingdom, because uh, it didn't matter here. But uh, we all know, perhaps, there there is a, a potato-based salty snack that comes in a conical plastic jar. Sorry, in a cylindrical plastic jar. Oh, we're talking about Pringles. Talking mm. about Pringles, okay. yeah. Oh, okay. Probably yeah. also Lay's Stacks, with an X, if you've oh. seen knockoff Pringles. Oh. <laughs> um, okay. But so Pringles, in the United Kingdom, this value-added tax also applies to potato crisps, mm. or potato chips, as we would call them. Um, and in the UK, Pringles wasn't paying the potato crisp tax because they said, no, no, we're just a savory snack. <laughs> we're not a potato chip. <laughs> and so this was an entirely different case that was ruled slightly more recently. Uh, and one of the reasons that they thought that they could qualify as a savory snack, which I found astonishing because I didn't know, <laughs> they openly said like, no, we can't be a potato chip. It's only 40% potato. <laughs> Oh, all right, so what else is it? It's, it's all kinds of other like wheat and like soy and, oh, and like kind of other binding, products. Yeah. yeah, and who knows what like maltodextrin and corn <laughs> syrup. Oh, but they're like, yeah, no, that's not a potato. <laughs> so it was a real... Don't we have like 40% of the same DNA as potatoes or something? We're probably 40% Pringles. <laughs> <laughs> So I have put together a quiz relating to playing with your food. I hope you guys do well. Good luck. Bon appetit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question number one. The most expensive pizza in the world is sold in Italy, and it takes 72 hours to prepare. What order of magnitude is the price of this pizza? 
Let's go in the tens of thousands. That's what I was going to say. Tens yeah. of thousands. Yeah. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. Yes. yes. Twelve thousand dollars. Nice. <laughs> it is a heart-shaped <laughs> pizza made at Louis the Thirteenth in Salerno. Oh. The chefs begin the process of making the dough and toppings 72 hours before they serve it to you. They prepare most of them outside somewhere else, and then they do the final steps of preparation in the kitchen, and they deliver it to you hot and fresh. Um, service is included in the $12,000 fee, but it takes a team of three chefs three days. What? What about it? What? I mean, like... Yeah, is it covered in truffles? Like, how... It okay. takes 72 hours because the dough is given ample time to rest before being made into the most expensive pie in the world. It is topped with buffalo mozzarella, three types of caviar, lobster from Norway and Salento, and is lightly dusted with hand-picked grains of pink Australian sea salt from the Murray River. Okay, question number two. <laughs> Apples, pears, and plums are all included in what family of flowers? So, like, the the clade, order, and family are all a type of flower that you'll be familiar with. Is it with. orchid? I don't think so. Then I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's so frustrating. All three are members of the rose family. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm, that makes sense. So, order okay. rosalis, family rosaceae, genus mollus. And that is the, that's that's cool. the, the, the typical, most apples fall into that genus. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Question number three. Once used to hold and ship samples of a food product for one particular vendor, is now the industry standard used almost any time you use that food product? Um, carton. An egg carton? No, not an egg carton. Let okay. me see. So I'll give you a little bit more detail. Um, it, it was invented in 1908 by a man named Thomas Sullivan selling samples from his shop in New York City, and he wanted to send them around the United States so that other people could sample his product. And now these little sample packs are the way that we deliver, or like the way that we use the product every day. Tea? Yeah. Nice. So cool. that is Thomas Sullivan's tea trade, uh, and he invented the tea bag. Oh. oh there so we go. he wanted to send cool. samples of his tea to potential clients outside of New York City, and so he wrapped small amounts of them in tiny silk bags, but sent no instructions. And when they arrived, people who received them, um, some just started boiling the tea and putting the whole silk pouch into the water and it would diffuse the tea out and it tasted great and they thought that was how it was intended to be used and they sent letters back saying we like your tea it tastes great we really enjoy the tea bags you've sent us and he said like no no that's not what they're for and then he started realizing how popular it was and he started making them out of cheaper materials and that was kind of the birth of the tea bag wow yeah and so before that there were like all kinds of metal strainers and you'd, you'd have it kind of like pulled out that way but the idea of having a tea bag is actually so like disgusting to British people at that time that when um, British tourists came to America, they wouldn't use tea bags. And it, was, it took almost 40 years for tea bags to become popular in Great Britain because they were just so not used to it. But uh, number four, what common food product was used as a medicine in the 1930s specifically to treat indigestion and was called Dr. John Cook Bennett's Panacea? Ketchup? It is. Nice. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it is ketchup. Yeah, it was called the tomato panacea, and uh, a lot of uh, really kind of like, just overblown things were attributed to ketchup. What's amazing, though, is that ketchup, as we think of it today, it's like a tomato preserve, but ketchup actually uh, referred to just any product that was preserved in a similar way, and so ketchup doesn't necessarily mean tomato ketchup, even as late as like 1900. And it was really the, the kind of uh, the, indus the industriousness of Heinz, the ketchup producer, 
who made tomato ketchup, and specifically fancy tomato ketchup, something that was desirable. Um, and so Heinz was the first person who kind of elevated food processing to like a reasonable level. And so that's why we have clear glass ketchup bottles, because Heinz was saying, I'm not trying to hide anything. My ketchup's all good. Because most ketchup before that was actually very low quality. Um, and it was the kind of stuff that was written about in like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and like the food processing industry. Oh, it was like mm-hmm. very, very bad. And some ketchup was actually fatal that it was so poorly made and like some things had fermented in it. Wow. Um, so Heinz was the first person way ahead of his time to say we have food quality standards and our ketchup is the best ketchup. And that's why Heinz really has such a kind of dominant role in the ketchup marketplace because it was the first and best ketchup for so long. Wow. Yeah. But it does not cure disease. <laughs> Just to be clear. All right. Question number five. How many different flavors do you find in a box of Fruit Loops cereal? Five. Uh, no, there's there's one flavor. It, there's they all they all taste the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, snap. So Fruit Loops, despite having numerous colors, I know I think they have five or six: uh, green, purple, blue, yellow, orange, and red. So six colors in traditional Fruit Loops. Checks out. Those are all colors. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nothing gets past us. <laughs> Yep, but they, um, they they all have the exact same flavoring, so it's just all artificial coloring to make your cereal look better. But there's one Fruit Loops flavor, and it's kind of a fruit blend. Question number six. The creator of Chuck E. Cheese also famously invented what device for game playing? That, uh, the, the claw thing? The, you know, where you, like, Ooh, you go, the and machines, the claw grabs like the, the, toy the toy, and it drops, you, <laughs> drops the toy, and that. I'm, okay. I'm being purposely vague when I say game playing device. Um, I, I could, I guess, also say game-playing system. Oh. So this is this is video games. Yes. Oh. Which I was unsure if I wanted to tell you at first, but now I feel that it's quite So scary. the inventor, sorry, the, the founder of Chuck E. Cheese mm-hmm. invented a, a video game system. Yes. Also. Mm-hmm. Is it one that we would have heard of? I guess that's the whole point of the question. Yes, yeah. I, I think it's famous enough that you would have heard of it, okay. and you wouldn't necessarily know the inventor. Uh, is it... Atari. Yes. Okay. So it's the Atari game system. Wow. And so, yeah, he was a big game fan himself. He liked uh, to create games. He obviously was good and made Atari. But then at some point he said, you know, I want to make like an arcade for young kids that they can like have like events at that's not full of like adult gamers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he created Chuck E. Cheese to be kind of like a kid's arcade. Uh, which is a really cool um, idea, and actually, it still is. I would, yeah. I would still go to Chuck E. Cheese, but that would defeat the purpose. It's a really, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really cool place for children to be forever tortured by the nightmare they experience watching animatronic rats play country music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not perfect. <laughs> um, but so Nolan Bushnell was the name of the founder of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, he's got quite a nice resume behind him, um, and interestingly, he. Um, it's kind of responsible for one other thing. I don't know if you guys have watched the movie Ready Player One. Uh, no. Mm-mm. There's a very important scene in which the Atari game Adventure is played. And Adventure was the first game that had an Easter egg, which was a hidden kind of gem oh, yeah. that you can uncover in the game, uh, which has big metaphorical meanings in Ready Player One. Um, but the Easter egg was if you found a little dot and carried it back to the start screen, you would get the name of the creator of the game, uh, which was a, something that Atari actually did not allow. So game makers' names were not in the game anywhere. And so the the creator of Adventure 
snuck his name into the game as an Easter egg as like a stick it to Atari to say like, I made this and you can't stop me because I'm a better coder than you are. All right, question number seven. In M&Ms, what do the M's stand for? Oh, it's... Uh, oh, it's Mars and something, I that's think. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I don't know. No. Uh, we give up. All right, so M&M stands for Mars and Murray's. Oh. Okay. Mars okay. and Murray. M-U-R-R-I-E, Murray's Chocolates, and Mars of Mars Bars, the chocolate company. So Mars and Murray, creator of M&M's. All right, and now we are on to question number eight. In 2013, the UN encouraged people to increase their consumption of what animals? Because there were 1,900 edible species of this general type of animal, and it might be a way to combat global hunger. Insects. It is insects. What? Yep. Wow. And so they said, there's so many edible insects on Earth, you should consider eating more. Two billion people eat a variety of insects already. And they, they gave some recommendations for good bugs to start with. <laughs> well, let's hear them. What have we yeah. got? And so this is a list of recommendations in Creepy Crawly Cuisine <laughs> uh, by biologist Julieta Ramos uh, Elordu. And so uh, she's a proponent of the entomophagy movement, or the eating of <laughs> bugs. And so she recommends, uh, I'll just go through the list, many varieties of beetles, butterflies and moths, bees and wasps, ants, Grasshoppers, crickets, and locusts, flies and mosquitoes, water boatmen and back swimmers, and stink bugs. Oh. Or basically all the insects. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice job on the quiz, guys. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in for our 10th episode of Fax Machine. Um, as always, please check us out on social media at Fax Machine Pod on Instagram and Twitter and Fax Machine Podcast on Facebook. And drop us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or any other platform that supports our podcast. I'll leave you with one piece of sage advice that knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit but wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad And can reach speeds of up to seventy miles an hour. Oh my God. <laughs> I think they're just faster milking than I it. thought. Mm. Uh, uh, I think. I see you. Oh no! I see you. <laughs> it was so late. Um, I was looking at my notes, but I got it. <laughs> I am utterly disappointed. Oh, oh God. my God! <laughs> you are really milking that joke for all it's worth. No, don't have a cow, Emily. Jeez. Uh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Oh, cheese. <laughs> <laughs>